1 Samuel chapter 4. The whole theme of the book of 1 Samuel is lessons from the heart. And uh, we've been looking at lots of different lessons from the heart, and, and now in chapter 4, it's not that it's not going to be another lesson from the heart, but we're going to kind of see a, a result, you know, of, of, of a heart in that sense. So when we get to chapter 4 here, we're going to come to a conclusion for Eli and his family as far as all the things that God has been saying up to this point in regard to them. But, but before we get into that, I, I kind of want to go back to this morning a little bit. If you weren't here, we covered the letter to a revelation that Jesus wrote to Ephesus, where he said that they had left their first love. When you read the accounts of early church pastors just after Revelation was written, about 40, 50 years afterwards, they state that Ephesus listened to the letter. They repented, and they returned to their first love. So here's the question. What would have happened if they didn't? What would that look like? Well, we don't have to wonder because we have our answers in this chapter. You know, Samuel has been a breath of fresh air to the nation of Israel, but the majority of the nation has spiritually deteriorated. God's word's ignored. We've been seeing that. Worship is despised, but the wheels are still turning, like everything's still happening, just like with Ephesus it had been going with them. Religion has replaced relationship. And like the Lord told Ephesus, we're going to see today that the Lord will say, I'll have no part in that. So chapter 4, verse 1. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now, Israel went out against the Philistines to battle, and they pitched besides Ebenezer, and the Philistines pitched in Aphek. And the Philistines put themselves in array against Israel, and when they joined battle, Israel was smitten before the Philistines, and they slew of the army in the field about 4,000 men. And when the people, the soldiers, when they came back into the camp, the elders of Israel said, wherefore, or why, why has the Lord smitten us today before the Philistines? Let us go fetch the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh unto us, and when it comes among us, it may save us out of the hand of our enemies." Now, the chapter starts a little weird because it mentions this phrase, and the word of Samuel came to all Israel, and you think, how does that fit? Well, it probably doesn't. The oldest Hebrew manuscripts actually have a paragraph marker ending after that phrase, so that probably belongs at the end of chapter 3. That being said, I understand why Christian translators put this in chapter 4, because it serves as a stark contrast to the rest of what happens in this chapter. Here we have Samuel. The word of the Lord through him is coming to the entire nation. You know, Samuel has a heart that loves to serve, a heart that loves to listen to the Lord. He's being molded and shaped by the Lord. And as a result, God has used him to spread his word to his people. But that doesn't mean that the people are sharing in Samuel's heart. We know Eli and his sons certainly didn't share in Samuel's heart. They were resistant. They didn't want to listen to the Lord, you know? Eli and his sons, they refused to repent, even though they'd received their own letter from the Lord, just like Ephesus, confronting their sin and, and warning them of its consequences. <clears throat> now, even though Samuel is right where the Lord wants him to be, the rest of the nation has, for the most part, replaced that relationship with the Lord with a horrible counterfeit, something called religion. Now, I know you're thinking religion, but aren't, aren't we a religion? If you go to a dictionary, you'll find many definitions for religion because it can be used in different ways. 
For example, uh, the first definition you find in the dictionary for religion is this, the belief in and the worship of a superhuman power or a supernatural power. That's not too bad. Uh, Christianity is far more than that, of course, but we do believe and in and worship a supernatural power, you know. Religion definition number two in the dictionary says this, a particular system of faith and worship. Ah, now that is a problem because there's no mention of any person that they're worshiping. It just mentions it's a particular system of faith and worship. In other words, you believe certain things and you have rituals that go with it. There's no relationship there. And so when I talk about how Israel replaced relationship with God with religion, that's what I mean when I describe religion as a horrible counterfeit you know, for relationship with God. You know, we, we talked this morning about how Ephesus had continued all the mechanics of their faith, all the mechanics of their worship, while actually abandoning the one they supposedly did it for. So when that happens, it's not difficult to deceive yourself into thinking, well, it looks the same, so things are the same. This is where Israel finds itself right now. Like Israel, I mean, I'm sorry, like Samson, they they got up from the bed thinking their strength remained even though their hair is gone, you know, just like Samson. The opposite of Samuel's mindset. But by this time, Samson is dead. He and Eli judged different parts of Israel for the last 20 years. The influence of their compromise is everywhere. In fact, part of Samson's legacy is the conflict he started with the Philistines. And that conflict has escalated now that Samson is gone. So verse 2, or the end of verse 1, it says, Now Israel went out against the Philistines to battle. So Israel initiates this conflict. We don't know um, why it started, but they go out to fight. They initiate this battle in some sense. They line up to fight. The uh, Philistines, they pitch their army, their tents in Ebenezer, and I'm sorry, Israel does, and the Philistines pitch in Aphek. This is on the coastal region by the Mediterranean Sea where they're fighting here. And it says that the Philistines put themselves in array. They, they set up ready. They lined up for battle. And when they joined battle, uh, actually that phrase means when they stopped battling, when they came apart from battling, it says Israel was smitten before the Philistines and they slew of the army in the field about 4,000 men. So Israel lost 4,000 men. Now the Philistines, just to remind us, we kind of met them in the book of Judges, but the Philistines were that group that had settled in what we would call modern day Gaza. Um, that they settled in that area. And the Philistines were so entrenched in those coastal areas and then had progressed and taken a, a control of the foothills, foot, foothills of the uh, Judean area, the Philistines actually gave their name to the entire land of Canaan, Palestine. That's what Palestine means. It means land of the Philistines, okay? So again, we see here that they pitch for battle And then when they discontinue the battle, it's not a slaughter. No ground is gained by the Philistines. Israel could still put up a fight. But this was indeed a Philistine victory. 4,000 men were slain of Israel's soldiers. Now, under Samson, Israel had kept the Philistines at bay. They were frightened. It was a stalemate at worst. So this is the first recorded loss that Israel has had since Samson's death. And that is very bad news. So verse 3 
When the people, when the soldiers, they come back into the camp and they realize they've gotten beaten, they've lost 4,000 men, the elders of Israel, these would be the tribal and community leaders. These were not judges like Eli, but they were tribal and community leaders. And, and it says that they said, wherefore, or why has the Lord smitten us today before the Philistines? Why has the Lord defeated us? This is interesting because they recognize that the only way they could lose is if the Lord was against them, if the Lord wasn't for them. See, God had promised the nation of Israel that if they walked in his ways and obeyed his ways, he'd fight for them. So they accurately assessed that defeat wasn't really a Philistine problem, it was a God problem. How have we offended God that he would turn against us, that he would abandon us, that he wouldn't fight for us, that we would lose? Now, their answer leaves a little bit to be desired here. But when you refuse to recognize you've left your first love, your solution is not to return to the relationship. Your solution is to ramp up your spiritual behavior. Well, let's just get more spiritual. So their answer was, let us fetch the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh unto us, that when it comes among us, it, not he, not the Lord, but it, the ark, may save us out of the hand of of our enemies. What's the problem, guys? What, what have we done? What have we done wrong? Here's our problem. We left God back at the temple. We tried to fight the Philistines without him. Someone go bring his box here. Now, I, I joke when I say the box. The Ark of the Covenant was special in that it represented God's heavenly throne room. The cover of the ark was called the mercy seat. So I know that sounds weird for the top of a box, but they called it the mercy seat because that was considered to be where the Lord sat. So the whole concept of the holy of holies, like remember when Isaiah had that vision of the Lord in Isaiah 6 and he says, I saw the Lord, he was high and lifted up, his train filled the temple and the smoke filled the, you know, the, the temple. That is what the tabernacle holy of holies was supposed to replicate, the throne of God. And so you've got this box, but the idea is that it's like a seat. It's like a throne for the Lord. And, and the way it was supposed to work is God's glory was there in the temple, you know, on, on top of the mercy seat, okay? And then the mercy seat, of course, the cover for the Ark of the Covenant, the lid, it had two cherubim on each side signifying or symbolizing the cherubim that we see in Revelation that are constantly declaring, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And they have six wings and you know, they cover their, their face and they cover their body with those wings and stuff. And they, it, it's, just, it's just that's what it's supposed to be picturing this idea that it's God's presence is in that place. This is his throne on earth in that sense. So while the ark was sacred because of what it represented, it wasn't sacred because it was magical or it had power, raiders of the ark nonwithstanding. What made the ark special is that, well, first off, it was dedicated to the Lord, but Secondly, because it represented Israel's commitment with God, that, that their desire to have God's throne be in the midst of their people, that, that he would be the one who governs their lives as their king, right? That's the idea. Now, the book of Judges taught us something about that, though, didn't it? That God wasn't most of the Israelis' king, right? It says there was no king in that day, right? Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. The king's word didn't mean much to his people. 
And so what had happened is, is that the ark became this magical icon in their eyes rather than a symbol of their relationship with the Lord. It was a cheap substitute, a horrible substitute for a relationship with God. So, verse 4, the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, which dwells between the cherubims. That's that idea. The Lord dwells between these angels on this throne. So they sent people to go bring it back. uh, And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, they were there with the ark of the covenant of God. So they send folks back to Shiloh to say, bring the ark. Shiloh was where the temporary, uh, the tabernacle had been semi-permanently set up. It was, it, it was normally on the move, but they had set it up in Shiloh for quite a few number of years. It had probably been there for about 150 years at this point. And the sons of Eli, they came with the ark. They didn't just send the ark, they came with it. Now, the Old Testament gives specific procedures for transporting the ark of the covenant. None of them required Hophni and Phinehas to be involved. There was a specific family of Levites who had the responsibility to transport the ark if it ever needed to be transported. And that family was not Hophni and Phinehas' family. So this is just another example of their overreaching. Instead of letting the Levites assigned to this task do their job, they oversee the process. And so they come out to the place where Israel has pitched their armies, verse 5. And when the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout so that the earth rang again and the earth shook. Now, this concept that they let out a great shout, that's the same exact phrase that was used when Israel marched that last time around Jericho and it mentions they made a great shout and then the walls came down. That's the last time in Scripture we see the ark involved in any kind of battle at all. Now, I can tell you what didn't happen. When the people shouted, raised and shoot out from the ark of the covenant and knocked the walls down, I can promise you that, all right? There's nothing unique about the shout other than the fact that God told them to shout. There was nothing unique about having the Ark of the Covenant there or special or powerful or magical except from the fact that God told them to have the priest march out with the Ark in front. God told them to do these things at Jericho. God never told them to do that again, never in Scripture. This is very presumptuous of the elders. And it's an idea, a solution rooted more in superstition than obedient faith like Jericho was. I love what Charles Spurgeon says about this. He says, now, beloved, and you got to know the time. This is the 1800s, okay? He says, now, beloved, when you are worshiping God, and he's a good old-fashioned Baptist, okay? He says, now, beloved, when you are worshiping God, shout if you are filled with holy gladness. If the shout comes from your heart, I would not ask you to restrain it. God forbid that we should judge any man's worship. Oh, man, that's good advice. But he closes with this. But do not be so foolish as to suppose that because there is loud noise, there must also be faith. Just because the earth shook doesn't mean it was the Lord shaking it. And so, verse 6, when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, what means this noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews? What happened? And they understood, or literally they found out, that the ark of the Lord was come into the camp. 
And these Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe unto us, for there has not been such a thing heretofore. Now, it was very common um, for armies back then to carry idols of their gods, representations of their gods in front of them uh, on standards or on, carried on you know, pedestals or things like that when they would go into battle. It often would give the soldiers confidence that their god would make them stronger or smarter or faster than their enemies, and you know, it never hurts to rub the bald guy's head, right? But Israel never did this, never did this. Even the Philistines knew Israel never did this, you know? Because Israel didn't need a physical representation that they could touch for good luck or pray to for an infusion of strength. The Lord is a living God. He's everywhere, so he's always with us. And the moment I need physical representations of that to make me feel like God is close, it means I've lost something. I've lost an awareness, a closeness with God that doesn't require those things. You know, when I went to Bible college, um, it was the first time I'd ever really heard um, modern worship music. I also went to a Baptist church, nothing wrong with Baptist. Charles Spurgeon's a good guy, probably my favorite. My church was awesome. But we were probably about 25 years behind the times and choruses, all right? I didn't know this. I, I was a newer believer when I went there and, and got there, and oh, these are cool songs, you know? And then I went out to Bible college and had my, because I played guitar, I had my songbook, and I was like, I don't know any of these songs. I'm like, oh, they must be behind the times. <laughs> Turned out I was. And so there's all these new songs that I was learning, and at the same time, God was radically transforming my heart, you know, as I was learning the word more. And so many of these songs had associations with them and stuff of, of these new things I was learning, these truths that were life-changing for me, you know? And, and so it was a special time in my life. And I remember, you know, a couple semesters later as, you know, now God was still teaching me, but it wasn't quite this dynamic, radical, emotional experience for me, that I started to think, well, I don't know, am I, is God still working in my life? You know, I don't, I don't feel the same things when I sing. I'm not, you know, I'm not, I don't have the same reaction as these songs are, are coming out. What's, what's wrong with me? And I remember the Lord said, well, just in, you know how the Lord does with that still small voice? He said, be really careful that you don't start worshiping worship. Worship me. You don't need to feel anything to worship me. Now, if you haven't figured it out yet, I'm, I'm slightly emotional. Slightly, you know, get excited about things and, you know, and stuff. And so, you know, for me, you know, that was a good lesson. I needed to kind of get my feet on the ground again and go, okay, so even if I don't sense your presence or I don't have these, you know, feelings or emotions, that doesn't mean you're not working in my life and it doesn't mean I'm not worshiping you. Well, Israel had lost that. They were acting just like the pagans. But here's the, the kicker. They thought they were just as spiritual as the day Jericho's walls fell. That's the problem. They, they, had, they had all this excitement. And they, they really thought that they were on the same place, in the same place spiritually that Israel was when they came to Jericho. That is the danger of substituting religion for relationship. See, because of the singing, the shouting, the preaching, the ministries, the activities, the outreach, the community influence, an observer might come into a church like Ephesus and be tempted to think, wow, these guys are spiritual. All 
while their spiritual days are actually in their past, not their present. All while the Lord isn't even there. Now, the Philistines did have a good reason to fear the Lord in battle. Verses 8 and 9 show us that. Woe unto us, who shall deliver us out of the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods that smote the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. So be strong, quit yourselves like men, O ye Philistines, that you be not slaves unto the Hebrews as they have been to you. Quit yourselves like men and fight. Now, they don't have the facts all right here. They say these are the gods of the Israelites, plural. Now, that makes me sad because that means Israel hadn't made it clear that to those around them they only worshiped one God. That's because it wasn't clear. Idolatry was rampant. We learned that from the book of Judges, right? So, they didn't have one God, so that's why they thought this way, that there's lots of gods. You know, as I was reading this, I thought to myself, you know, a good way to evaluate where I'm at spiritually would be to go ask an unbeliever who knows me how they would describe Christianity from looking at my life. That's a good way to figure out where I'm at spiritually. What's your impression of Christianity just by looking at me? What would you say about it? Just find an unbeliever that knows you and ask him. You might be blessed, you know. You might realize some things need to change. I remember I was in a conversation with someone, friends of ours from Canada, they were not believers. I remember he pulled me aside one time and he said, Will, he said, you're different than most of the Christians I met. He grew up in church and he had some bad experiences. He goes, you're different than many Christians I've met. He goes, and I won't get into all of it, but he listed all these things. He goes, this is what I hear and see in media and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, I, I see that you love people. I see that you believe the word of God. I, I see that you believe Jesus is the only way. And I thought, after that conversation, I thought, wow, praise the Lord. <laughs> you know, that's good. But, you know, that's where Israel had blown it. Philistines didn't have a good view, an accurate view of who the Lord was because Israel didn't portray one. Now, even though they didn't have the story, quite right, uh, the story quite right, some truth had trickled down to them, though. They, they knew enough that they didn't want to end up like Egypt, right? They didn't know correctly where it happened to Egypt, but, and they didn't understand it was just one God, but they knew the Lord had done something to Egypt, and they didn't want that to happen to them. And so they said, we got we to gotta get this good. We got to fight like we've never fought before. And somebody gives a speech and gets everybody ready to, to fight for their lives, to fight for their families, to fight for their homes, to fight for their freedom. Now, that's crazy to me. They think they're fighting against the God of Israel and they're going to give it their best shot. They're actually going to try to win. They actually thought if they were courageous enough or tried hard enough or gave it their all enough that they could beat the Lord. Well, I guess it shouldn't surprise me because the world will do this during the great tribulation. When the Lord begins to take back that which is rightfully his, he begins to open the, the, the break the seals of the scroll and lay hold of what is rightfully his, they will shake their fist. They'll line up to fight him. So this antichrist mentality, it's, it's been around for a long time. And my challenge to you is this. If you don't compare what's going on in the world and in society with Scripture, you're going to get caught up in it. You'll be deceived. Now, since the Lord wasn't with Israel in this battle, this gumption, this, this working up the, the, the sweat, we got to fight for our lives 
That gave the Philistines a serious advantage. They fought like everything depended upon it. And so verse 10 tells us, and the Philistines fought, which actually means they initiated the attack. They said, let's just go for it. And Israel was smitten. They were too busy shouting, I guess. And they fled every man into his tent, and there was a very great, great slaughter, for there fell of Israel 30,000 footmen. Now that's not just a loss. The phrase that they fled every man to his tent means they fled all the way home. This was an absolute rout. Israel had the ark, but God was gone. And putting your confidence into a nicely decorated wooden box is an absurd notion. And it cost Israel everything. Verse 11, and the ark of God was taken, captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, they were slain. So just like God told Eli would happen, his sons would die in the same day, God keeps his promises, even the unpleasant ones. Verse 12, and there ran a man of Benjamin out of the army and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with earth upon his head. And when he came, lo, Eli, he, was, he sat upon a seat by the wayside, by the road that led into Shiloh, watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told it, all the city cried out. Now, when this guy shows up with his clothes ripped and he's got dirt on his head, those are symbols of mourning in, in the Middle East. Um, when uh, Mordecai, uh, Esther's uncle, found out about the decree of the king that anyone in Persia could kill a Jew, they could kill him on, that, on, a, on this certain day, um, he went and sat in ashes and dumped the ashes on his head, put on sackcloth. It's another way that they would mourn. This guy didn't have time to go find any sackcloth, so he just ripped his clothes, and he's chucking dirt on his head any chance he can get as he's coming back to report this awful news. So when they would see him like this, everyone would know that something horrible had happened. Now, why is Eli out by the road instead of at the tabernacle door? Well, it tells us he trembled. He was terrified for the ark. Now, that's interesting to me because God has said some terrifying things to Eli already, hasn't he? I mean, it's not like this is the first bad news Eli's gotten. Eli, a man of God came to Eli and said to him, you know, listen, your two sons are going to die on the same day. You're going to be the last old man in your family, and, and God's going to judge your entire line. And what, did, what is Eli doing? Oh, okay, well, whatever the Lord seems good, you know. And then God tells Samuel what he's going to do. And, you know, Samuel tells Eli, and Eli goes, well, you know, whatever pleases the Lord. None of these things shook him. None of these things bothered him. And now all of a sudden, even though he's okay with all the judgment God says coming on his kids, the ark now, this has him trembling. Why? Well, that hadn't been part of any message from God. If something happened to the ark, well, that would spell doom for everything he sought to preserve. That would render the entire usage of the tabernacle impossible. Everything, I mean, his whole life, the life of his family would literally be over. He couldn't keep up the sham and the charade anymore. He couldn't protect his family from anything anymore. And so now, well now, Eli's not so okay with God's judgment anymore. 
The idea of taking his future in his own hands by not putting God first, well, now it terrified him. And when the entire city started to wail, he doesn't know why yet, that didn't help the situation. Look at verse 14. And when Eli heard the noise of their crying out, it says that he said, what means the noise of this tumult? And the man came in hastily and told Eli. So apparently Eli had some servants around him or something, and what's going on? And so he sends somebody to go find out, and they bring this messenger guy. The word tumult means commotion, confusion. People were surely crying. They were probably asking questions. And so when Eli hears the noise, he sends someone to find out what's going on. And the messenger comes in, and he tells Eli the bad news. Verse 15, now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were dim that he could not see. So even as the guy comes walking up, he doesn't see what everyone else sees. He doesn't see the the torn clothes and the dirt on the guy's head. He can't see any of these things. And so the man, verse 16, he reports to Eli, and he says, I am he that came out of the army, and I fled today out of the army. And Eli, he says, I, I get that. What's going on? What happened? He says, what is there done, my son? And the messenger answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great slaughter amongst the people, and Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. Now, up to this point, Eli's not freaking out yet. But then he gives one more. And the ark of God is taken, captured. And it came to pass when he made mention of the ark of God, that he, Eli, fell from off the seat backward by the side of the gate, and his neck broke, and he died. For he was an old man and heavy, and he had judged Israel for 40 years. The first news comes in. Israel's fled. This is not an organized retreat. I am not the normal messenger runner. This is an absolute rout. Tons of Israelis have been killed. Your own two sons have been killed. And Eli's just going, okay, I expected this, expected this, expected this. But when the mention of the capture of the ark happens, why did that elicit such a violent reaction from Eli? Well, I think Eli had come to terms with the fact that he couldn't protect his sons from the Lord forever. But even though God told him he would see the diminishing of Israel under his leadership, I don't think he ever conceived that that meant the Philistines would gain the upper hand again. Having the ark in their possession would would only embolden the Philistines to bring back the dark days that existed before Samson. Eli's an old man now. What did he do? Samson's dead. Israel wouldn't just be diminished. Without the Lord's protection, if he wasn't in their midst, they'd be wiped out. And I think that's why Eli loses all hope at that point in time. And he just reacts violently and ends up killing him in the process. And so it makes mention here, he had, he had judged Israel for 40 years. It is a mistake to presume that a little compromise will only have small consequences. But that's what Eli clung to every time God corrected him. And 40 years of repeating that mistake ends up taking a big toll. And Eli didn't realize what that toll was until it was too late. 
40 years of going through the motions, 40 years of modeling religion over relationship to the nation he led. This was an absolute failure of leadership with devastating spiritual results. Now, sadly, God told Eli that wouldn't be it. He said that this judgment would extend to his entire family. And so in verse 19, we see something horrible happen here. Verse 19 says, And his daughter-in-law, Phineas's wife, she was with child. She was pregnant, near to be delivered. She wasn't to term yet, but she was in that final trimester. And when she heard the tidings that the ark of God was taken and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed herself. She fell to her knees. I mean, this was just devastating. And the emotional pain that she experienced was so, the stress was so great that it says she travailed. She began to go into labor for her pains came upon her. The phrase pains came upon her, it means it means her insides started to turn, you know. This caused her to go into premature labor. You know, I, I, I'm not a woman, and I'm glad I've never had to give birth. You are heroes, as far as I'm concerned, all right? My wife was in labor with our first child for 32 hours, and that was terrifying for me, all right? First off, because I didn't think I was going to make it out of the room alive. But to watch what she had to go through, that was... That's rough stuff, you know? And so I can't imagine. Anyway, not knowing much about this, I thought, well, can stress do that? You know, can stress cause this? Sure enough, like immediately I started reading. That's like one of the top reasons for, for premature labor is stress. And so, you know, this is what happened to her. She is, she is devastated emotionally. And, and as a result, it, it causes the body to react in a way that maybe it wouldn't normally or naturally react. And as a result, she goes into premature labor. And this was a horrible day for, for this to happen to her because the premature birth took her life. Look at verse 20. And about the time of her death, the women that stood by her said unto her, do not be afraid for you have borne a son. But she didn't answer anything, nor did she even regard it. They assumed the cause for her distress was the premature labor, that she was worried about the child. Uh, and so the thought was, well, the child's healthy, and, and it's a son. You know, giving birth to any healthy child, they thought, would calm her down. But news that it was a boy was hopefully, you know, would replace the stress with pride and joy. Um, I know I just praised you ladies, but that's not how you were viewed back then as heroes. Um, if you, a birth was coming about, and they didn't have ways to have, know what it was beforehand back then, you know. Um, it's funny, me and Bev, the first time we, we our first child, we said, we don't want to know. We want to be surprised, everything. And then, of course, you know, you get all the very neutral colors and everything for gifts and stuff. And we thought, well, now we want to know all the time. But they didn't have any way of knowing that. So when a woman went into labor, everybody got together to celebrate, you know, like, like maybe you would in your family. But when the nurse came out and said, it's a girl, everyone went home. No lie. Everyone went home. Guys came up to the dad and said, I'm so sorry. Because they knew you're going to have to pay for that woman. You know, you're going to have to get her married off. She's not going to work in the family business. She's going to go work in somebody else's family. And that was the way it worked. When it was a son, they threw a party. So the idea here was is that, well, 
you've got a son, you know? You've given birth to a boy. There's going to be a legacy to carry this on, you know? But that didn't cheer her up. That didn't alleviate her stress because the child wasn't the reason for her despair. Look at verse 21. Before she dies, she does name the child. And she named the child Ichabod. Ichabod literally means no glory or no ruler, no prince, no no glory. Why? Saying, the glory is departed from Israel because the ark of God was captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory is departed from Israel for the ark of God is taken. So there are two factors here in her thought, no glory, no prince, no ruler. First off, she was, had been living the high life, you know? Eli was the judge. Her, her, her husband was one of the, you know, the, the high, he was the high priest, you know? He, he's one of the most, you know, you know, influential people in all of Israel. But now that's gone. And the ark is gone. There's no worship anymore. Her family has no position anymore. Now, when she also mentions the glory is departed from Israel, certainly that's not just looking at herself. And so that's the second thought, is that the glory of God is gone. In Psalm 26, verse 8, we read in Psalm 26 for our scripture reading, but in verse 8, it says something very interesting. Psalm 26, 8, the psalm writer, David, says, Lord, I have loved the habitation of your house. You know, I, I, I've, loved, I've loved that place. I, I love going to the tabernacle. And the place where your King James says honor dwells, but literally it means glory dwells. The tabernacle, the the, the temple after David, that was the place where God's presence was, his glory was. We call it the Shekinah, you know? That's where his glory was. That's what that cloud was that led Israel, you know, in the wilderness, and, and, and eventually it resided inside the tabernacle. She says... God's gone. It's gone. Why did God, why did she say that? Well, when God brought Israel out of Egypt, he promised to have a relationship with them. That was part of it. He made three promises to Israel, to Moses, who gave it to Israel. Number one, I'll bring you out of Egypt with a strong right hand. Number two, I'll bring you into the promised land that I, I, I promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the land that I promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And number three, I'll be your God and you'll be my people. We'll have this relationship. He promised that to them. Now, while God's presence guided them through the desert, that was not going to work when Israel settled the land. Why? <laughs> because Israel would be too close. Their sin too apparent. In fact, when they stopped at Mount Sinai and they were going to settle down for a bit, God told Moses, I want you to put police tape all around the mountain where my presence is. Look at Exodus chapter 19 with me. Exodus 19, and we'll just look at verses um, 9 through 13. If you want more context, read it on your own because it, it describes this problem of a holy God and a sinful people being this close in proximity to each other. But it says here in verse 9, <clears throat> and the Lord said unto Moses, is Exodus 19, verse 9, 
And the Lord said unto Moses, Lo, I come unto you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you forever. And so Moses told the words of the people unto the Lord, because um, they had said, you know, Lord, we'll do whatever you tell us to do. We'll be your people. We'll follow your commands. If you'll be in our midst. The Lord says, okay, I'll be in your midst. So here's what the Lord says, verse 10. And the Lord said unto Moses, go unto the people and sanctify them, make them holy, set them apart today and tomorrow, let them wash their clothes. They need to get all, all the junk cleaned up and then be ready on the third day. For the third day, the Lord will come down in the sight of all people upon Mount Sinai. And Moses, here's what you need to do. You need to set bounds unto the people all around the mountain saying, take heed to yourselves, beware that you do not go up into the mount or even touch the border of it because whoever touches the mount shall surely be put to death. There shall not a hand touch it, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through. Whether it be a beast or a man, it shall not live. And when the trumpet sounds long, they can come close to the mount, but they can't touch it. Otherwise, they'll be crispy crittered. So the idea here is God sets boundaries even when his presence is going to be in their midst this close. Now, that wasn't going to work long-term either. God nearly wiped the nation of Israel out when they worshiped the golden calf. So the Lord gave Moses plans for how his presence could dwell in Israel's midst. And what was the result? The tabernacle, the sacrifices, the priesthood, tons of careful procedures to ensure that a sinful people could be close to a holy God. Now, and by the way, that's why it's so important to read the Old Testament. I frequently, when I talk to, to New Testament, Christians who have not really been familiar with the Old Testament, they go, well, I just don't understand hell. Like, I think God's being harsh. I'm like, you need to read the Old Testament, bro. You know, you'll get a better idea of just how holy the Lord is. We usually only get that feel when you read the book of Revelation again in the New Testament. It's important to understand these truths from the Old Testament. This is all that had to be done so a holy God, you know, could be close to a, a sinful people. It's why the cross is so awesome. So the idea here is, despite all Israel's sin under Eli, God's presence had remained. You know, the tabernacle was still there. The priesthood was still there. Sacrifices were still there. But in Eli's daughter-in-law's mind, God's gone now. Priests are dead. The ark is captured. Tabernacle's exposed. Everything God did to make them a special people was gone. Her son, Ichabod, would preside over no one and nothing. He was just another kid who would end up being a slave to the Philistines. Now, if that's horribly depressing to you, that's because it is. But that's the emptiness of religion. She thought she had something before, when the reality is she already didn't have any of these things. Religion deceives you into thinking you have something you don't. Now, we fast forward to the cross, to the New Testament, and now we have it way better than Israel did. I am not your priest. This is not a temple or a tabernacle, you know? You're the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? Jesus lives inside of you. And wherever you are, you can be in his presence. And we don't have to be worried that we're going to be wiped out when we blow it, amen? We don't have to prepare sacrifices. We don't have to dress a certain way. And we don't have to keep God's presence at arm's length. Verse 11. 
Jesus' sacrifice made it possible for us to enter into the Holy of Holies to be as close to him as possible. And so Hebrews tells us, you know, the beauty of this better covenant that we have than the old one. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 23, it says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness, freedom, to enter into the holiest, the Holy of Holies, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, not the old covenant way, not through the priests and the sacrifices, but through a new and living way, which he has consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh. He has consecrated it for us, you know, that we could go inside that veil through his death on the cross. And having a high priest over the house of God, Jesus, because of that, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith because we've had our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let's get as close to the Lord as we can. And also, let us not give up. Let's hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering because he's faithful who promised. That is why Jesus rebuked the church at Ephesus. That's why. He says, I've done all this for you. I'm walking in your midst. Why would you settle for religion when you have me? And so I would say to you tonight, if the Lord isn't your top priority, or if you've been busy being religious but not drawing near to Jesus, listen, the Lord loves you, and he purchased something way better for you than that. So repent. <laughs> repent and get back to that close relationship with Jesus. Amen? Amen. Now, if that's not the case, and you say, Pastor, well, Jesus is my first love. I'm, I'm right where I need to be. Good, then stay there. <laughs> Don't leave that. Stay close to Jesus. Like Samuel, have a heart that loves to serve, a heart that is willing to listen. And what will happen is none of this. The Lord will constantly be in your midst. He will not leave you or forsake you. That's his promise. He will not let you go. He will not let you down. He'll be faithful to the very end. Let's all stand. Jesus, you are awesome. When we say that you're worthy, and we sing it, it's because of how awesome you are. Because you've done such awesome things for us. That you have indeed created this new and living way that we can enter into the holiest of all by your death. Lord, thank you for the cross. Thank you for redeeming us by your blood. Thank you for washing us clean. Thank you for giving us your righteousness so we don't need special clothes. We don't have to have special sacrifices. Thank you that what you did on the cross was once for all. And now we can come boldly before your throne of grace to find all the help, grace, and mercy that we need. Lord, you urge us to enter in, not stay away. So Lord, tonight, if there have been any 
in any way, Lord, we have replaced that with religion, with, you know, a, a body of ideas or a, a, a way of, uh, you know, a, a, a criteria of, of rituals, Lord. If we've somewhat, re- if we somehow replaced our relationship with you with that, Lord, we respond to your warning and we say, we repent. We don't want to do that anymore, Lord. We want to draw near to you. We want to be more in love with you than we've ever been because your love for us never dims. So Lord, I pray for every person who's in the hearing of my voice tonight that you would help them to stay close to you, remind them of your great love, remind them of the awesomeness of this new covenant. So Lord, we would be reminded every day to run to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.